So you want to be a pastor is the title of my message today, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. After I chose that title, I started thinking, is there anybody that really wants to be a pastor? (laughs) Uh, You look in Scripture and you see how many ran from God's call and offered excuses, but there does come that time when God calls someone to serve Him, where I believe He puts a desire in the heart to uh, say, Yes, Lord, here am I, send me. 1 Timothy 3 beginning at verse 1, and we read in Jesus' name. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation and cured by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for those that you've called into ministry to serve you. As Paul writes here, it is a good work, a fine work. And I pray, Lord, that you would challenge each of us who are in ministry today in terms of our relationship to you and the character of our lives and the ministry to which you have given us. And, Father, for those that you may, even today, be challenging, be calling into that work, Father, of of ministry, I pray that you would encourage, that you would strengthen, that you would also remind us, Lord, that we need you every hour of every day. We are dependent upon you. So, Father, teach us from your word today. May your spirit guide us into your truth. Your word is everlasting truth, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a young man who came to his pastor one day and he said, I believe that God is calling me into the ministry. And the pastor said, well, tell me how and why you believe that. He said, well, I had a dream last night. And in my dream, there were two letters in the sky, the letter P and the letter C. And the pastor said, well, explain that to me. He said, well, I believe that God is calling me to preach Christ. And the pastor said, you know what? I'm not really sure about that. Maybe he's actually calling you to plant corn. (laughs) This young man was a farmer and the pastor wasn't quite sure if that was really the call of God. Well, every believer is called to be a witness for Jesus. 
No matter who you are, no matter where you work, no matter where you live, God wants you to be faithful in using those opportunities to share Jesus. But not every believer is called to be a pastor or to be a missionary or some kind of full-time service. Someone has said about ministry that if you can do anything else, do it. (laughs) And I've thought about that quite often. If you can do anything else, do it. And and, and the man went on to explain that the call of God to serve him in full-time ministry should be so clear that to do anything else would be to disobey him. Now, when God calls us to ministry, sometimes there's a struggle that goes on, and I'm sure those of you who are pastors here today would would say that there was this battle kind of like, Lord, do you really mean me? Do you want me? And we look at all of our, our limitations and the ways in which we lack, and we, we ask the question, Lord, why would you call me? <laughs> why would you call me? But when that call becomes embrace there there is a desire that god puts in our hearts a desire to serve him and a desire to prepare for that service and that's what paul is addressing in in the first verse of our text he says it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer it is a fine work he desires to do And those two words really struck me, the word aspires and the word desires. The word desires could be described as a passionate compulsion. It is something that God places within us. My dad used to call it a holy heartburn. (laughs) And maybe that's a good way to describe it, where God puts in your heart this desire to serve him, to say, here am I, Lord, send me. The word aspires means to reach out or to stretch out for something. And it pictures one who is actively pursuing something. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, taken together, the two terms describe the man who outwardly pursues the ministry because of a driving compulsion on the inside. And I think that's a good way to put it. A man who outwardly pursues the ministry because of a driving compulsion on the inside. Sometimes that driving compulsion on the inside has been given the term the inner call of God. Where God puts that desire in your heart to serve Him and you pursue it. You say, Here, my Lord, send me. Paul says, If a man desires to serve as an overseer or as a pastor, then he must meet the qualifications. And I think there's about 15 of them here. And as I was studying this passage, I thought, you know, this could be a series that could go on and on. Kind of the series that never ends. It goes on and on, my friend. (laughs) But I believe you can place these 15 characteristics into three groups. Three groups. 
First of all, a pastor must have a good reputation. Notice how Paul kind of bookends this. He, he, he begins and ends with a, a very similar qualification of a good reputation. In verse 2 he says, An overseer then must be above reproach. And then in verse 7, when he ends this list, he says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The word translated above reproach describes one who literally cannot be taken hold of or cannot be held. And it pictures one whose life is such that there is nothing for which he can be accused. The King James Version translates it blameless. And this obviously does not mean that a pastor is expected to be perfect, because if that were the case, there would be no one in ministry, believe me. (laughs) There is not a single pastor in this world who will ever be perfect. And so that's obviously not what Paul is getting at here. What he means is that his life has not been marred by obviously sinful behavior. And this is important certainly within the context of the congregation. According to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, a pastor is called to be an example to the flock. And therefore, the way that he lives among the, the, the flock, among the congregation, is vital. It's important. It has a huge impact on others. I remember my father saying to me, Son, people will not remember your sermons. <laughs> He said, but they will remember the way that you live. And I could probably do a little uh, survey here. Some of you probably can't even remember what I spoke on last week. Uh, Sometimes I have to ask myself, now what did I speak on last week? Uh, We don't really remember those sermons, but you know what? People remember the way that you live. And all of these qualities that Paul gives here really are, are characteristics of godly living. They are... Not so much abilities as they are having to do with Christian living. So within the congregation. But then in verse 7 he talks about a good reputation with those who are outside the church. So not just within the fellowship of the body of believers, but what kind of a reputation do we have with those outside the church? Those who don't know Jesus as their Savior. Pastors have a very visible position in the body of Christ. Some are involved in ministry that is kind of in the background, not really well known, and and people don't see a lot of what is done by, by some in the body. But pastors have a very visible position. And when they get caught in the snare of the devil, as Paul describes in verse 7, their life becomes a reproach to the work of God's kingdom. And Satan loves when a spiritual leader falls because the world then uses that as an excuse as to why they're not a Christian, don't they? How many times have you heard someone say, if, that, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want no part of it. 
And that's why those in ministry must have a good reputation, both within and outside of the congregation. And one of the things that I pray about the most as a pastor is that I would never do anything that would cause the kingdom of God to have reproach, that caused the body of Christ to, for people to say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want no part of it. So a pastor must have a good reputation. Secondly, a pastor must also have good restraint. If a pastor is going to have a good reputation both inside and outside of the church, then he must exhibit self-control. And there's various areas in which Paul deals with that. Control of alcohol must have been a concern of Paul because he mentions it twice. In verse 3, he says that a pastor must not be addicted to wine. And besides that, the word temperate in verse 2 It may be used here in a broader sense, but literally it means to be sober or to abstain from wine. And when you consider all that alcohol has done to ruin individuals and marriages and families, why not just avoid it altogether? Why play with fire? Control. Of alcohol. How about control of his emotions? Paul goes on to say that a pastor must not be pugnacious. <laughs> Love that word. Pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable. The word pugnacious is literally one who is not a striker. It pictures one who doesn't settle disputes with his fists. <laughs> and the word peaceable is similar and means reluctant to fight. And so a pastor does not strike back when facing opposition. He is gentle because he wants to point people to Jesus. Look at chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So fighting might have its place in a hockey game, but not in ministry. The pastor ought not be a striker. Uh, First opposition, he's ready to put up his fist and say, come on, let's go at it. It's not the picture of... Pastor, control of our desires, in particular the desire for money. Paul says in verse 3 that a pastor must, must be free from the love of money. And the Bible is very clear on that danger. If you jump ahead to chapter 6, starting at verse 6, Paul says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Even among Jesus' own disciples there was one, wasn't there, Judas? As the treasurer for the disciples, he used to pilfer what was brought into the treasury and even sold. He, he, he denied Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. A pastor must have a good reputation. A pastor must have good restraint. And then the third area has to do with relationships. A pastor must have good relationships. And the two that he mentions in particular is, first of all, with his wife. In verse 2, he says that he must be the husband of one wife. And that has created a lot of discussion as to what exactly Paul means. It's interesting, the phrase literally is a one-woman man. (laughs) A one-woman man. And that would certainly forbid polygamy. Having more than one wife, it may also have something to say about divorce and remarriage, but it goes much deeper than that. One author says a woman, excuse me, a one woman man is a man devoted in his heart and mind to the woman who is his wife. He loves, desires, and thinks only of her. He maintains sexual purity in both his thought life and his conduct. And this qualification was clearly important in the city of Ephesus because as Paul writes this to Timothy, he is giving him instruction about ministry in that city. And that was a place where sexual immorality was running rampant. But it's equally important in our day as well because this is where many spiritual leaders have fallen. In the area of sexual temptation. A one-woman man. And then Paul mentions the relationship with his children. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then Paul adds this statement. He says, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? When I read this uh, qualification as uh, terms of household, I, I can't help but think of Samuel in the Old Testament. Samuel was a, a prophet of God. In many ways, a very dedicated man of God, and yet we see that he failed with his children. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says, It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Appoint a king for us to judge us like the other nations." 
As I reflected on that, I wondered to myself, what was it about Samuel, this fearless prophet of God, whose children went astray? And then if you look at the verses just before that, in 1 Samuel 7, 15 and 16, it says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And some have suggested that, that maybe Samuel was the kind of man where, where ministry was, was outside, the, outside the home, out there. He was, he was going all over the place, but not really ministering in his own family, his own home. And you contrast that with a man like Noah. How many people did he reach? There were only eight that were saved at the time of the flood, but it was his family. His family. And we have a responsibility as spiritual leaders to our family. To God first to our family next, and then to our ministry. And if we reverse those in some way, we get those out of priority. We're going to struggle in ministry. And so relationships with wife and with children. As you look at all of these qualifications for being a pastor, it's very interesting to me that there is only one aptitude here. There's only one ability that is listed here, and that is the ability to teach. You look at all of the other characteristics here, they don't have anything to do with, with our ability or our gifts, but they have to do with Christian living, which really says something, doesn't it? We would never minimize the importance of teaching the Word of God. Because... That's the calling of a pastor to proclaim the, the truth of God's word. But, but ministry is, is more than just teaching. It is more than that. And, and you guys in seminary need to remember that. It's, yes, that, that, that preaching and teaching responsibility is vital, but that's only a part of the calling. The way you live your life is really important. Someone has said, Pastor, your life speaks so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. And that'd be a sad thing to hear, wouldn't it be, as a, as a one in ministry, you know? Your life screams so loudly against what you say from the pulpit, we can't hear what you're saying. And so Paul calls us to, to godly living. This is the first time I've ever preached on this. We've done Bible studies on it, but when you go through a book of Scripture, you can't just say, well, we're going to skip these verses and move on to the deacons. <laughs> but as you look at these characteristics, at least for me and maybe for you pastors here too, it, it, it causes you to say, God, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your power. We sang, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. And that's, that's the conclusion I've come to as I look at all that Paul says about those in ministry. God, you've got to help me because I need you. I need you. 
And if you're wondering how these qualifications become a part of the life of those in ministry, I think the key is found in verse 6, where Paul says that a pastor or an overseer should not be a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The word new convert is literally newly planted. <laughs> newly planted. Which emphasizes that there is a need for, for spiritual growth, for spiritual maturing. Spending time with the Lord as the Lord molds and shapes our lives. And I think of Jesus as He chose these disciples. When He first chose them, they were misfits, weren't they? (laughs) In many ways. They had all kinds of challenges and all kinds of problems. And Jesus fed them and He taught them and He discipled them for those three years. And He filled them with His Spirit. And you look at them in the Gospels and then you compare them in the book of Acts and you just ask the question, are these the same men? (laughs) Yes and no. (laughs) Yes and no. They're the same guys. But they were different men. Because God matured them. Jesus poured His life into them. And as they were planted in the truth, and they began to grow and mature, it was God's work in their life that made them the kind of men that they were. John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine. And He said, You are the branches. The one that abides in me will bear fruit. For apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. And that's the call that we have then to to be in the Word and to allow the Lord to mold us and shape us and, and make us into the men that God wants us to be because we don't find it in ourselves. It's not our gifts. It's not our abilities. It's not our intellect. We don't have anything to offer. It's just the Lord's work to change us and transform us into what He wants us to be. So not newly planted, but but one that's growing in His relationship with Jesus. One that is maturing in the faith because of time spent with the Lord. And that's a fruit that remains then. It's not this kind of uh, plastic fruit that we might try and pin on our tree. We look at the, well, I'm going to make myself more gentle. I'm going to make myself this way. I'm going to be this way. I'm going to be that way. New Year's resolution. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to be a different person. That's, that's flesh work. And that will not last. Spiritual fruit is a natural outgrowth of a nourished life. When we abide in the Word, abide in Christ, He makes us fruitful. He produces the fruit of His Spirit. He produces these qualities into our lives that He can use then to help us in the ministry to which God has called us. So you want to be a pastor? Look at these and you say, Oh no, Lord, that's not for me. I remember growing up some of the old ladies in our church, are you going to be a pastor like your dad? I said, no way. Mm-mm. Not for me. I can't explain it. But God brought me to the place in my life where there was a desire to serve Him. And I entered with great fear, and I still enter this pulpit with great fear every Sunday. Because I want to be faithful to God. 
But God puts that inner desire in your heart, causing you to stretch out and, 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 and prepare for that ministry. Then God can take you as weak as you are, sinful, limited human beings, mold you, shape you, fill you with His Spirit, and then use you for the glory and the praise of His name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for the calling that You give to those that You have placed in ministry. And Paul says it is a fine work that one desires to do, a fine work that one aspires to. And so, Father, do that work in the young men that are even sitting here this morning, Lord. Ones in our seminary and maybe ones in our Bible school, too, that you are calling. Remind them, Lord, that it is your work in their life. As you uh, bring spiritual maturity, as you mold them and shape them. And as they allow your word to teach and to feed their souls. And to make them into the kind of men that you would have them to be. And God, may you be glorified. May you be honored. May you be lifted up through all those involved in the work of your kingdom. For the glory and the praise of your name. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.